With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode 65 of the Talking Chop podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, and joining me uh, for the multiple time, this is a multiple time guest, uh, the managing editor, I believe, of Awful Announcing, and as well as, under, as well as several other things, Joe Lucia. What's up, man? Thank you for having me, Brad. Really appreciate it. I think this is my third time, and I always look forward to ranting about the, uh, the lovely Barbs and their disappointing, miserable season so far. Yeah, it's not been a whole lot of fun uh, as we record this on Sunday night. Uh, the Braves lost. I, I won't say a heartbreaker because it was not uh, one of the top five or six losses of the season, but an unfortunate game in which the Braves were leading relatively late on Sunday and uh, had a chance to sweep the Marlins on the road, but uh, basically fell one pitch short of that as uh, Ari Dickey gave up a home run that what, you know slammed the door shut. But sort of a positive series, at least, over the weekend. Obviously, there was a six-game losing streak before that, but uh, t- took two out of three from Miami. Maybe the tide is turning, Joe. Talk me into some positivity, or probably not, but I don't know. How are you feeling right now? I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, the things about this team that are, like, exciting and watchable, and I mean, there really isn't much. I mean, Freddie Freeman is incredible. Matt Kemp still having a great year, but what else is there? I mean, who is the third best player on this team right now, either on the pitching staff or the offense? They're there really just are not many things to get excited about through what five or six weeks into the season. It's just been, it's been very bland so far and I did not expect that at all, actually. Yeah. I mean, my expectations were probably lower than most people's were. And I think uh, you and I are both relatively reasonable level-headed Braves fans. So it's not like we were expecting greatness, but uh, yeah, it's sort of been even uglier than I thought it would be, to be honest. And uh, even you know, with the caveat that they actually that they've actually won two out of three here, it was worse than that even before the weekend started. But yeah, it's probably a good question actually as to who the third best player is. I mean, I guess you would assume it would be Julio Tehran, but I don't know. Uh, he's not been great. He's not been great this year. Obviously, he's kind of struggled. I mean, he was good in his last start um, in Miami, but uh, at home he's been absolutely terrible. And it's too it's too uh, too small of a sample to talk about like actually uh, having a home issue for Julio. But I don't know. It's really kind of an open question to see who the th- third best player is, and that's kind of not where you want to be uh, even at an early stage. Yeah, I mean, there just is not much to get too amped up about. Actually, by war. Uh... Number two is Inciarte, and number three is Tyler Flowers. Yeah, that Tyler sounds Flowers, about right. <laughs> which, I mean, I'm, I'm all in favor of that. He's on a great contract. He's cheap. He's not really young, but he's young-ish. He's not completely over the hill. But, man, when Tyler Flowers is third on war in the team, that that's a problem, kids. Yeah, it's it's certainly not great. Um, and Ender is probably actually a good answer if we were going down like from an, from an overall baseline perspective. 
because of the defense and the position he plays and the stuff that he does. I think Ender probably in the, in the conversation there. But I, I was actually going to ask you about Flowers later. Let's just get to that now because we talked about him. Uh, I, I pulled his numbers since he joined the Braves for this podcast. Over 408 plate appearances. He has a 287, 380, 421 slash line. Um, good for a 115 OPS plus or, you know, kind of all those. He's It's been slightly above average as a as a starting catcher over that time. Are you buying into, like, him being this? Or is it, I think coming into this year, at least I thought he, he would take a step back from last year because I thought it was pretty, I don't know, so, at least somewhat unsustainably good a year ago. But he's now picked up right, right where he left off and has kind of been, you know, as good as you could possibly ask him to be. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to hit 353 all season. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's going to drop by 70 points. His BABIP is 451, which is, I mean, otherworldly high. But he is an above-average starting catcher, and right now he is probably the Braves' best trade chip once we get into July, considering, I mean, all the veteran pitchers are really struggling and there aren't that many players on the offensive side of things that could be considered trade bait. And considering how weak the catching market is and flowers, I believe has an option on his contract next year. That's really cheap. He could be a guy that could gain some substantial interest in the trade market. And uh, I'm all for getting rid of him. If it means, you know, getting a top 20 prospect or so in return. Yeah. He has a $4 million club option for 2018, which is looking like a big time bargain for how he's been, uh, and yeah, yeah, again, I, I'm definitely with you that he's not this guy, but he's you know he's young enough to where it's like not crazy that he could just do not this from this year, but the overall sample from you know 400 plate appearances now has been good, and I think that's not enough to make sweep, sweeping judgments necessarily, but he has been pretty pretty darn good since he came over, and that's one of the one of the small uh, positive things, and I think that's at least a spot where we've talked about for so long that catching has been an issue for the Braves long-term. There was the, there was the brief AJ Przinsky renaissance two years ago. And obviously flowers was reasonably good a year ago, but like long-term there really isn't that guy, but you know, flowers is what 31 years old. It's not like he couldn't be around and be a useful, a useful guy for next year. But yeah, it's a good point. Actually, actually had not thought about the potential that he could be marketed, but uh, with that club option as a tantalizing a little chip there that he, he might be an interesting trade, tra- trade piece that we won't, we, we, normally we talk about, uh, you know, the pitching guys and even like guys like Brandon Phillips as sort of the obvious trade guys, but Flowers might be on that list. Yeah, I mean, like I was thinking about this earlier today. I, there's There aren't a lot of players that you think are going to get a lot of interest, and I didn't think of Flowers as one of those guys that might get dealt, but looking at it, he's the guy that is having the best year and probably has the most value, and it's at a position that is weak across the league, so... I mean, they would be smart to at least field offers for him and try to get something substantial in return for the long term. And it wouldn't it wouldn't be a bad move to trade him. But at the same time, if they can't get, you know, if they can't get that offer that really blows their socks off, I mean, just keep him. It's not there's not a catcher knocking on the door that's ready to go. Who knows when Alex Jackson's going to be ready, if he's ever going to be ready in the majors as a catcher. So why not keep rolling out flowers if there really isn't an offer that is satisfactory? Yeah, that's a spot in which he's not the sexiest guy in the world, but if even if he takes a step back from this, he's still a useful starting catcher for next year and that kind of fills a spot where 
at least at least for cheap for one more year. And yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Uh, worth a shot to kind of put him out there, but if you don't get blown away, then hold on to him. I do think people are going to react as if uh, it'd be a problem that you would trade him because of this year. But I think it's probably, uh, if not time already, we should probably talk about the fact that it doesn't matter what happens this year necessarily. I think you know, sh- short of some monstrous. Uh, you know, reincarnation of this team. It's going to not matter what who's really who's really in the lineup down the stretch, except for you. You want you want to see more young guys and things like that. And and the Braves don't really have that young catcher as you spoke about there because you know Kurt Suzuki, Anthony Recker, like there's not a guy that you have to get at bats, but in the same breath, if you could actually extract some value, Cobby's shown the ability and the willingness to do that. It's just whether he gets that value. Yeah, I mean, this is a lost season at this point. We can't think of you know possible contention in 2018 right now with the way this team has performed but getting into that we're reaching a point in the schedule where if the Braves are going to try to try to make something resembling a playoff run this year this is the stretch to do it right now just finished up three in Miami against a bad Marlins team four against the Blue Jays team that isn't good and then over the next month I mean four against the Pirates team that's falling apart Three against the Giants, who are they just haven't gotten on their stride. Three against a bad Angels team. Three against a Reds team that aren't good. I mean, this is the stretch where the Braves can possibly flirt with 500. And the NL East and the National League as a whole is bad enough where, I mean, they could put some wins together and actually might be consider nominally contenders if something happens over this next month or so. Yeah, you can do it in kind of both directions because if you want to go by the win, by the winning percentage and go that and go that route, they're on pace for. Well, I think I looked at it earlier. It was like sixty-two wins, uh, which is obviously not something where you want to see. But it's so early that if they go out and win, you know, five out of six, six, six out of seven, you're looking at almost the, almost the five hundred mark. And then things can look a little bit rosier. So for as ugly as this has been and as doom and gloom as it's been uh, in, on this podcast and really, you know, Twitter, all those, all, all parts of the fan base, uh, one little run here with a favorable schedule that you outlined there. I'm glad you did. Uh, people could be talking about this team a lot differently. I think it's important that if that does happen to realize that it probably doesn't matter still in the other direction. Uh, maybe I'm probably being too negative there, but, uh, you know, this team is 25 and 25 uh, in, in a little bit here. I won't suddenly be thinking this is going to be a playoff team. I'll just be like, hey, they, they, took, they took advantage of a bad schedule and they're playing a little bit better. Um, but, you know, a lot of people will think, all right, here we go. It's time. It's time for this team to be competitive. And, uh, you know, competitive is one thing. It's sort of, a, it's sort of whatever, whatever your definition of, of competitive is, whether competitive means that you can win 78 games or whether competitive means actually a playoff-ish team is kind of up for debate. But I don't know. I, I think it's probably important to sort of warn people not to get tricked into it, but also it, it'd be a lot more fun if they were a little bit more I mean, I, I, I almost said competitive again, but they were a little bit better than they have been so far. Yeah, I agree. And, I mean, my overall projection for the team hasn't really changed as the season has gone on. I mean, I still think they're going to win somewhere in the area of 74 to 78 games when all is said and done. I mean, I don't think they're going to end up losing 90 or 100 games. I don't think that's this team. But just looking at the pieces and how they've fit together and progressed or regressed so far. It's kind of surprising to see how everything hasn't gone as expected, but yet overall the sum of the parts is it's pretty close to what I thought they would be. 
Yeah, I'm with you all the way. I think I picked uh, 76 wins coming in, something like that. I can't remember what my actual firm, firm uh, an official prediction was, but it was something in that range too. I think you and I are kind of in lockstep there, but it hasn't changed for me necessarily. Obviously, this is a little bit uglier, uglier than I thought it might be early on, but in the same breath, you know, Freddie Freeman's not going to be this good over a full season. He is going to be good. There's no question about it. Matt Kemp also has been pretty hot. There's been some uh, some positives, but on the whole, I think the majority of guys you might expect to uh, get better rather than to regress. Obviously, Tyler Flowers on that short list of guys who's been better than he probably was going to be moving forward. But you know, it's all going to even out. It's just how much it evens out and uh, kind of what the end result of that is. But I think it's probably it's better than what it's what it has been, but not necessarily going to be a playoff team either. Um, yeah, so I guess I was going to ask about that later, but you're, you would still project the same sort of thing. I think you said said that there, but somewhere in that you know mid mid to high seventies, somewhere in there, if you were to have have to do it all over again now. Yes, yeah, seventy four to seventy eight. That's where I'm pegging them at. That's what I did before the season. That's what I'm doing now. I mean, they're not going to go on some kind of huge run, and the division is so strange right now in that the Marlins are really much worse than everyone has expected. The Mets have fallen apart quicker than anyone expected. And the Nationals have just taken advantage of all of this and have jumped out to a sizable lead. And then there's the Braves and Marlins. They're just they're just kind of there. The Braves and the Phillies and the Marlins. There are all these teams that were expected to be fighting for like the three, four, five in the division. And I mean that's what they're doing. So it'll it it'll take care of itself. And I think I think I still think the Braves finished third in this division when all is said and done. Yeah, I actually picked the Braves third too. It was more of a, a situation where I was just super down on uh, you know Philly's kind of interesting, but I was super down on Miami. So that this this early start has not really surprised me that much for the for the Marlins. Um, I think you know the Braves still have a I believe fourteen run worse differential than the Marlins do. Hilariously. The Mets actually have the second worst run differential in the division right now, uh, which I don't think is necessarily going to continue, but they've also had a bunch of uh, issues with their pitching, so maybe that's going to happen. But I don't know. Third's, third's not unreasonable in any way. Obviously, the Braves are tied for last right now, and they have the worst win percentage considering they played two last games in the Marlins. But you know, third is still seems attainable, if only because Philly, Miami, and even New York are all kind of, uh, if not worse than we thought they were going to be, at least uh, definitely not better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I completely agree with everything you just said. But I think the Phillies are almost – I think the record kind of undervalues how like young and exciting they are because they have a lot of pieces on offense that are actually playing quite well so far. Like, I would totally take Aaron Altair in the outfield over Nick Markakis any day of the week. And I almost think their rebuild is further along than the Braves right now, which – I wouldn't have expected coming into the year. They just look like a better team overall. And I know the teams have only played, I think, three times so far, but that's just how I'm feeling about them right now. Yeah, they've been uh, intriguing, and uh, Philly's definitely better than I thought they were probably going to be talent-wise. Uh, as, as you mentioned, they have a negative five run differential, uh, which is actually uh, way, way, way better than their record at this point in time. Again, it's all small sample stuff, but uh, there you go on Philly. Um, moving on to a couple of things, uh, housekeeping items. Actually, since the last time I recorded this, the Braves traded for Danny Santana, and uh, you obviously cover the whole league, so you probably have a better feel on Danny Santana than I do. That was sort of a peripheral trade for the Braves to sort of bolster, bolster their bench, um, at least in the uh, way that they possibly can do without giving up too much. What was your feeling on that, and uh, kind of tell me what you think about Danny Santana as a player? I mean, he's the kind of guy that we all think Emilio Bonifacio is. 
he's Emilio Bonifacio five years ago when Emilio Bonifacio was half good. I don't know why Bonifacio is still on the roster. Him and Santana are, I mean, they're almost redundant. They do the same thing, kind of like Bonifacio and Darno did. So I, I think, I think the domino will finally fall when someone gets hurt and they need to make some kind of move. But I do like picking up Santana because the bench has been such a weakness this year. And even though he's not going to blow your socks off, he's the kind of guy that can play multiple positions. He can hit one out of the park from time to time, which Bonifacio really can't do. And he's the type of player this bench really has needed all season. And I can't find anything to really get upset about bringing him in, aside from the fact that Bonifacio is still there. I, I, it blows my mind that he is still there. His WRC plus is now lower than Dansby Swanson's, and he is still on the 25-man roster. I, I don't get it. Yeah, it was uh, hilarious. I would echo your sentiments on Santana in general. You know, he's not this world beater, but he's definitely an upgrade on Bonifacio. And uh, when they pulled off that trade, uh, you know, not a not a not a not a needle moving move necessarily, but uh, the fact that Bonifacio was not the guy who lost his job was kind of hilarious, only because they are so similar and Santana is just better. So like, why do you need two of those guys? But in the same breath, as you said, you know, Darno and Bonifacio were kind of the same thing, and they have some bizarre uh, infatuation with uh, Bonifacio, which we'll see how long it lasts. But every time I think that he's going to go away uh, based on a roster move, he still stays. So we'll see what happens. But Santana, you know, if not the best, best, if not the best bench player on the team now uh, on the short list, that's not exactly a huge uh, compliment to him based on the fact that this is probably the worst bench in baseball. But, uh, you know, with Peterson and Santana, that's that's functional. And obviously, Kurt Suzuki's been pretty decent so far as well. So now you have three guys. It's just you need some more help, but uh, it's getting a little bit better by the day. And I think, you know, to the to that end, if, if they want to be competitive this year, and I think at least they want to fake as if they're going to do that, you might see another one of these kind of moves in the, in the near future here because, you know, if not for Bonifacio, they just have to bolster the bench in some sort of way because there's always so much you can do with, their, with a lineup in season it's just easier to make these peripheral additions and you know Santana is not a guy who's going to just you know change the world for the Braves but he is a minor upgrade yeah and I mean what what has always shocked me about the bench creation this year is that there's there's no power off the bench there if you need None. a big homer <laughs> late in the game you have nothing and I mean they tried the Ryan Howard experiment in Gwinnett it didn't work and I mean, we saw it today in the game against the Marlins. They pulled Tyler Moore off the bench. He hits a game-winning three-run homer. The Braves don't have a guy that can do that, and it's it's just not good. It's really bad when your top pinch hitter it's, is one of a slap-hitting utility guy or a backup catcher or a utility guy that can take a walk but not do much else. It's it's just so depressing how limited overall this bench is. I was going to ask you this actually, and this sort of weaves into there. Obviously, the Ryan Howard thing was a disaster, but if you had you know late game, if for, if for some reason this team actually was competitive late, and you were in a, in a big situation, full bench, who who would you call on to get it to even get it hit? Not, not even power, because obviously the power is just non-existent. But who's the guy you feel most confident? with at the plate of, of all these bench guys is it Jace Peterson because obviously I, Peterson's a guy I actually like but not necessarily because of, his, because of his bat so it's I don't know I think he's the best player but like who do you think is the, actually the best hitter in a spot where you might have to make a call and actually just have a guy that you feel comfortable with 
I mean, it would probably be Peterson because I think he can make contact and actually do some kind of damage, get something through the hole. Because you know Bonifacio is not going to hit a gapper. Oh, it's not know. him. We, we know it's not him. <laughs> and I don't think Suzuki can do that at this point in his career either. And because he's a catcher, he's slow. So, I mean, it, it's Jace Peterson by default at this point, which is really sad. Because he's a guy that couldn't hold down an everyday job. And now we're looking at him as this elite bench option, which ugh, it's really depressing. It is. <laughs> we can move away from that. I just, I was just curious because I think you and I are uh, in alignment there. But it's sort of a uh, not, not a great, not a great reality for the bench. But let's let's get away from that. I was going to ask about a couple of guys specifically. Uh, you mentioned him earlier in passing. Dansby Swanson starting to show some signs of life. Uh, he has more uh, a walk rate that's uh, now over ten percent, which is encouraging. He's gotten a little bit better. His bad bets just inevitably rising because it was so low early on. Uh, we basically talk about Dansby every week, but I wanted to actually get your take on it and sort of what you've seen from him in this small sample because obviously it's been much much worse than anybody would have thought it would have been this year. But I I, I want to know if you think he's like you know not broken, but if there's anything to actually be like huge uh, concerned about at this point. I think he's pressing a lot, and I think a lot of that is to do with the off-the-field marketing of him. I mean, this is a guy that had, gosh, he had 38 games in the majors last year. And coming into this season, I mean, the Braves were plugging him with the new ballpark stuff right up there with Freeman and Kemp and Inciarte, and that's a lot for a guy like that to handle. So, I mean... He probably needs to go down to the Myers to work on his swing and his approach and all that, but he's not going to get sent down because they've invested so much in him and they don't really have an adequate replacement. So he's in a really tough spot right now. I, th- I think in time he'll be fine, but I'm just trying to imagine everything he's going through, struggling while being positioned as this kind of like face of the franchise type guy. It's, it's a lot to deal with, man. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was too much too soon in that way. I, I do think that I agree with you that, you know, barring some sort of disaster with Swanson into, you know, June or July where he's still, you know, as bad as he's been so far, they're not going to send him down. It would just be a panic move in the eyes of a lot of people. Um, with that said, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. I think I'd probably roll with him for a little bit longer because we, 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 we've at least seen some positive signs in the last few days here, and maybe he can sort of climb out of this thing. But I don't know. A lot of it for me, I wonder if you feel the same way I do on this, is that, People got a little bit too high on him uh, with the small sample last year. Even, you know, he wasn't number one overall pick, but not, not necessarily the type of guy at the plate specifically that's going to be this, like, all-world hitter. It's more of a full combination with him, uh, with, with the defense playing premium position, all those things. I think people saw, saw that 300 average last year and, you know, maybe a little bit of power and thought that he might, he's going to be able to just do that right out of the gate, and that seemed a little bit high for me. But I don't know. Do you agree with that? And kind of what do you think his ceiling actually is? Because that's sort of a, a point of contention now with uh, a lot of Braves fans, even obviously in the midst of these struggles. But even before that, when people sort of, I think, were probably overprojecting him at the plate at least. He's a really tough guy to kind of build comps for based on what we've seen the shortstop position kind of evolve and change over the last decade or so. Because, I mean, when you and I were growing up, it was, it was the all-glove guy that really couldn't hit a lick. I mean, Jeff Blauser, that was, that was the prototypical shortstop for the era. Now, I mean, you got, you got guys like in the early 2000s, A-Rod, Jeter, Miguel Tejada, Nomar, that era of shortstops. And then it kind of ticked back down again. Now it's ticking back up. 
he's never going to be a Carlos Correa, a Corey Seager type of kind of guy. I mean, I think his ceiling is uh, – I don't like to compare anyone to Derek Jeter because of the 8,000 intangibles, but I think that's the kind of hitter he could be. You know, uh, high twos, low threes hitter with a 370 or so on base and maybe 10 homers, 20 steals a year, and decent enough defense at short. I think that's the guy he could be, which it's a fine everyday shortstop. It's probably not a superstar, but it – it's it's a starter in this league. I think that's what his ceiling is long term. Just a guy who is going to hold down an everyday job for 10, 12 years in this league, be it with the Braves or another organization. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And, you know, the Jeter comparison is not you're not the first person to say that. And I think you know, normally, as you kind of said there, it's kind of tough to put names on these things. But it, it's reasonable in that, you know, Jeter's, Jeter's uh, actual – Actual production at the plate does not necessarily always match what the, what the lore is on him. He did have, obviously, some ceiling years there where he was incredible at the plate. And I think Swanson, that would probably be a little bit high for him. But in terms of just the baseline there, it's, it's reasonable when you break it down there to just think about what he can be. And that's, you know, as you said, 300 hitter, maybe, maybe you know, in, in the teens in terms of home runs with 15, 20 steals. And that, that's a really, really good player in his prime. He's just not that yet. Which people, I think a lot of people thought he was going to be able to just do that as a rookie and just never stop doing it. And we've seen that not, not, it's probably not going to happen this year. I mean, the light could come on at some point. And that's not out of the question necessarily. But with this rough start, um, you, kind of, you kind of see what the downside is with, with pushing guys as aggressively as they have. With Swanson, you know, I had no, had no problem with it necessarily. Last year, he was an older guy. Obviously, he's a college player. It wasn't as if they, they, they dropped him out of the prep ranks and had him up at, at, at age 19 or 20. He is, you know, 22, 23 years old when, when playing in the majors. That's not crazy at all for a number one overall pick to already be up. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess in an ideal world, you might you might want to send him down for maybe a week or two and got to kind of get his things straightened out potentially. But uh, probably not going to happen, uh, especially because – uh, if they were to do that, they don't really have the obvious shortstop because I can't imagine. I said this actually last week on the podcast. Maybe I'm crazy here, but I can't imagine they would uh, they would send Swanson down and call Albies up. That's never going to happen. So, and he's obviously struggling as well at AAA, which 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 we should note. But there isn't that obvious uh, fill-in guy either, unless you want to go with you know Camargo or something along that lines. I mean, I guess Peterson or Santana if you had to do that, but. I don't know, man. It doesn't really matter at the major league level. It's more about Swanson for me, and we'll see if uh, and hopefully he can break out of this in the next couple of weeks and months. But uh, you know, my my expectations are definitely lower than they were, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I fully agree with you. And like you said, I mean, they're not gonna call Swanson up and bring Albies up just just because Albies, you know, he he's not ready yet. It's, no, that's he's the not. fact of the matter is a lot of people are like, oh, we should call it. He, he's it's not his time yet. He's still – he's even younger than Swanson. He needs a full year at AAA to get accustomed to it. Maybe he can be up in September just as kind of a bench roll, spot, start, spot starter job and relief of Phillips at second base. That That's really it for him. There's there's no one they can really play at short if they go without uh, Swanson for a time. So I think he's – I think he's here to stay, and he's going to get his swing and approach worked out at the major league level, for better or worse. Yeah, Ozzy always was born in 1997, which is just another reminder that you and I are old, Joe. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, his numbers are ugly this year. Uh, sub-300 on base percentage for Albies is not, is not exactly the way that he was going to have to carve out a way to get to the majors. It's going to have to be him sort of lighting the world on fire at the age of 20, and he's not done that so far. So that, there's really no reason to uh, – kind of aggressively aggressively promote him 
I actually want to ask you about a couple of guys that the Braves are promoting like crazy uh, here. That's sort of a good uh, natural segue. But uh, over over the course of the last week, uh, the Braves have called Ronald Acuna and Luis Gohara up to up to Double A, Patrick Weigel up to Triple A, and a lot of people are starting to talk about the Braves uh, sort of racing the prospects up too quickly in the system, especially in the lower parts of the system. I kind of want to know what you think about that as well as uh, we, can, we can kind of drill down on these guys if you want to, but especially Acuna who's been out of his mind in Mississippi. Yeah, Acuna's been on a roll. I think he's been up for a week and he's hitting like 520 or something like that. He is, he is smashing the ball. And I, even jumping him to high A was a bit of an aggressive push, some people thought. But to push him to double A, that's incredibly aggressive. But he's handled it well so far. He's eventually going to come back down to earth. And I hope, I hope this doesn't inevitably stunt his development. But right now it looks good. And as for the pitching, I mean, there's so much depth in the system. And I assume a lot of these call-ups were due in part because of guys that were held back in extended spring getting ready and for full-season ball. And they're ready now, so why not move up some of the more advanced prospects who are having a uh, good start to the year? Why not move them up a little bit and... Uh, move some of the lesser known guys to the back end of the rotation or the bullpen at these levels and let the uh, other young kids that are now ready to go back from injury or fatigue or what have you and let them shine. Uh, It makes perfect sense on paper for me. And if these guys are really ready for the level that they're at, uh, I mean, they'll eventually adapt. Yeah, I'm with you. I have no beef with it. Uh, there's some people, and there's people that I think are smart that are starting to sort of raise eyebrows just how many guys are getting you know, aggressively pushed, but I don't think it's crazy. Nothing that I've seen has struck me as insane in terms of timeline stuff. As, as something was, I would definitely say that because I have no, no problem saying that out loud, but you know, Acuna has been good enough to where it's not crazy, and obviously he's not overmatched in AA so far. He's been, he's been incredible, and you know, Weigel going to AAA is not crazy at all. Gohara was fantastic. They're at least letting guys show that they're uh, playing really well at, at specific spots before they move them up crazily, you know. And I have no problem with them being aggressive. I think the one worry would be that you push guys too quickly just because you're worried about the major league product. But these guys aren't going to the major leagues now, you know. Even even the most aggressive timeline for Acuna includes maybe a midseason call up next year if everything just goes perfectly. And even then, that's that's kind of crazy fast. But you're not, you're not talking about this year, and uh, so it's not like it's not a situation where the Braves are panicking and thinking like, "Oh, I, we we have to get Ronald Acuna up to the big leagues this year." That's that's not going to happen. If it does, I'll I'll start screaming about it. But until then, I'm all right with them sort of pushing guys aggressively. Yeah, I don't have an issue with them as long as they're not screwing around with the 40 man roster. You know, right? If if they start adding these guys to the 40 man and cutting loose these middling 4A players that are still there and on the roster for whatever reason, then, then we might have a problem. But if they don't have to do that, I mean, it really doesn't hurt to just play around with the guys at the upper minors because, I mean, there isn't that much of a difference between AAA and AA when all is said and done. And a lot of the guys getting the jumps, I mean, they're, they're highly touted guys that, I mean, they deserve these promotions when all is said and done. So... I think they'll be fine at the end of the day. And if someone does struggle, I mean, I don't, I don't think they would hesitate in sending them back down. If they had to, yeah. I mean, there's no reason not why they wouldn't do that. And hopefully it doesn't come to that on all these guys. But, you know, eventually it's going to happen to somebody. And that's, you know, we'll see when that happens. But for now, I'm all right with the way that they're treating them. 
um, for the most part. I wanted to ask, though, because there was that, I think, there, I think it was Monday of last week, maybe Tuesday of last week, when there was a ton of roster moves, both major and minor, and that was included in those, so worth bringing up here. Um, a guy who is young and also in the majors, so it's I guess it's a good bridge there, is Mike Fultonavich. Uh, his season-long numbers don't look incredible um, so far, but there's some noise in there, at least for me, with this with the, with the weird snow game and his weird relief appearance as well. When he's actually just been a regular starter under normal circumstances, his numbers have been pretty good. He actually pitched very well early on this week too. I'm wondering what you've seen from Fulte, and uh, you know, do you think he's sort of turning the corner here because he's the one guy that's currently in the major league rotation? I guess aside from Tehran, that actually profiles as someone who could really be a difference maker moving forward. The thing about him, as it always has been, has been like the way he cracks. As soon as the armor is breached, he starts falling apart. We saw it in the Milwaukee game where he had the no-hitter for, I think, what, five innings? And then as soon as he allowed the first runner to get on base, it all started immediately falling apart. That's why I thought the comments from Snitchburg, I think it was a week ago, where he called out, I believe, his lack of mental toughness or something along those lines. That I think that's what really rubbed me the wrong way because you know Fulty is a guy that just falls apart right away. And it really bothers me that you know he is not someone that is probably the mentally strongest. Whenever something starts going wrong, it starts falling apart for him on the mound. He clearly has the stuff. I mean, we saw it this weekend against the Marlins. He was fantastic. But when when the dam breaks, it gets ugly for him quick. And that's the thing that uh, that's always gotten me about him. If they can find a way to just keep his mind in the game and just brush off whatever's going on behind him, I think he'll be – I think it'll be great in the long run, but that's a huge hurdle for them to get by. Yeah, it's a big hurdle, and he's and he's uh, he's he's twenty five. He's not he's not that young. I mean, he he is young, and that's not you know there's not there's no reason to panic on that. But uh, it's not a situation where he's twenty two and you're thinking about you know some polish here. It's going to be it's not it's definitely not now or never. But it's a, it's not a guy where you're just have the longest rope in the world with him either. So we'll see we'll see what happens. But I, I've been encouraged with what you've seen from the mound. Obviously, you know that you mentioned the Miami performance. He was very, very good there, but uh, yeah, it's it's an issue that he has to be he has to address. I think he's been a little bit better at it. There's been some times when he's uh, been able to fight through some things in the last couple of starts where uh, at, where, where before that I might not have uh, expected him to do that. But there are there are some red flags as well, and uh, we'll see what happens with Fulton. But worth noting though that uh, you know you know his upside is unquestionably the highest in the rotation right now, even even higher than Julio's. Is you know Julio has been a guy who we could talk about forever as well, and but you know we kind of know what he is at this point in time. He's a he's a solid number two that happens to be your number one, and that's kind of what he is. But, you know, Fulte, if everything went perfectly for Fulte, he might be a number one starter. I mean, that, that, that probably won't happen at this point in time. I'd say it's probably it's more, it's more less likely than it is actually to happen, but it could happen, and if it, if it goes well, it's, it's always nice to have a guy that, you know, on the downside is a functional starter already, and on the upside could be really, really good. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the stuff is there. It's just the mental makeup, and that's what really uh, – so it really frightens me with him. If he can get that all together, he'll be he'll be a dominant force. But we're at the point where I mean something's got to give with that, and I don't know when it will. Yeah, hopefully soon <laughs> in, a, in a positive direction. Um, there are three veteran starters though 
that are still on the team, uh, aside from Fulte and, and Julio, that are in the rotation. Uh, how many of those guys, uh, this is a, a weird question, but I guess it's an open one. How many of those guys do you think via injury slash trade slash ineffectiveness will still be in the rotation when we get to, say, August? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to say, I'm actually going to say two. That's probably what I would say, too, just for the record. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think I think Cologne would have the most marketability because he is the most established. And while he has the highest salary of all three and has the least control, it's just a straight one-year deal. I, I mean, he, he's got that. He's got that track record that even though he's struggling right now, I think some teams could buy him and thinking he'll turn it around. And I, I think Garcia and Dickey are both here for the end of the season. I can't see any team giving up anything of significance for them. And, I mean, I don't think Dickey will break down because he's never broken down. And I think they're being – I wouldn't say they're being careful with Garcia because they're still keeping him games way too long with how he gets battered around. But I don't think they're letting him throw as many pitches as uh, you may expect. And I, I, I think he'll stay healthy for like 150 innings or so this season. Yeah, Garcia is the one who is interesting, at least the most interesting to me. I think I think you're right about Cologne and trade value things. Garcia has just has, has been good in the past. Um, when healthy, you know, but last year I think we saw the the stay healthy approach, and that was not necessarily great with a uh, an ERA of four point six seven, FIP of four point four nine. He kind of might just be that guy, and if he's that guy, then his value on the market is not huge, you know. And, and he's reasonably paid. You know, he's making I think twelve million this year, which sounds like a lot of money, but really isn't that much money for a starting pitcher on a one year deal with no risk. Uh, it's fine, but yeah, I think for me, you know, if they can trade all three, then trade all three. Uh, but I just don't. I just, I just don't know if you have uh, that much in terms of uh, interest on these guys if they pitch sort of how they pitch so far, like not disastrously. Like none of none, none of those none of the three guys have been awful. You know, they're not great by any means. It's not like exciting to watch them pitch on a daily basis. But even Garcia, you watched him struggling a little bit. He still has a 4.33 ERA and six starts. Like it's not like he's a disaster either. So the, you know, it's just innings that you're getting out of these guys, and you know, we'll see what happens. But. I think I would go with two as well. I thought it was an interesting question, though. And uh, also, sort of as a follow-up to that, who do you think gets the first shot of the guys who are in AAA right now? Between, you know, you have the obvious guys like Whistler and Blair, but you also have Newcomb and also Lucas Sims, who's come on this year so far. It's a small sample, but Sims um, has a 2.57 ERA with a 3.23 FIP and about a 4-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio, which is that's <laughs> the most encouraging thing for me in six starts for Sims. So, I don't know. If you had, if you had to pick one of those guys to come up, uh, as the most intriguing for this year, and I guess you know next year, maybe maybe the year after that, who would you go with? If they need spot starts, obviously Whistler and Blair are gonna end up getting the call just for just for a quick stint. I mean, th- those are the easy guys; they're familiar with everything. They would be the ones that would just get the one start and get sent back down the next day. If it's an extended DL stint and they need another starter for a month. I could see them going with Whistler. I, I think Blair doesn't have much of a future at all long term. I think, I think his future is in the bullpen or with another organization. He's not a Braves starter long term. But if they do need a guy for a DL stint, like I said, Whistler, I think, might get a shot. 
and I think they could go with Sims since he was uh, he was a guy from the old regime, and they may just want to see if there's anything there, and if there's not, move on to the next guy. If if he sticks, great. If he doesn't, I don't think they're going to spend a ton of time, you know, like nurturing him and trying to make sure that he is ready for the major league level or so on and so forth. I think they would just roll him out to see if there's actually anything there. And if there is, great. If there's not, then they'll just let him go. Yeah, I'm with you on that, actually, with Sims. And uh, for me, the most intriguing thing, I said it a second ago, but just to, get, just to drill down a little bit, he's only walking two guys per nine. Uh, it's, it's only six starts, but his big problem has always been control. So if he has that sort of figured out here, then he could be a very interesting prospect. And it feels like he's been around forever, but he's only 23. Uh, he's still two, you know, two and a half years young, younger than Mike Fultonavich. Uh, I believe still, if, if not younger, about the same age as, uh, as Sean Newcomb. So an interesting guy to sort of think about because I think he gets lost in the shovel, but he has been pretty good this year. Um, what do you think about Newcomb, just sort of in general, honestly? But you know, he's almost 24. I just looked it up. He, he, he turns 24 in June. The control stuff is still there, but he's walking more guys. I mean, sorry, striking out more guys this year. He's pitched generally pretty well in AAA. Do you think he's a guy – who could arrive this year, if nothing else, in September? And if, if that is the case, do you think he's actually a useful piece? Because obviously he's been pretty volatile over the last couple of years. I honestly don't know what to expect of out of him. No, nobody does. I mean, <laughs> it could be like a Mauricio Cabrera situation where he goes up to the majors and suddenly he has control. I mean, we saw that with Craig Kimbrell years ago, too. I mean, throughout the minors coming up in the bullpen, he couldn't hit the broad side of the barn at times. His control was terrible. Then he gets to the majors, and it's perfectly acceptable. That could end up being the case with Newcomb. And if worse comes to worse, could you imagine him coming out of the bullpen, too? That would be pretty fun to see. Yeah, I mean, people have floated that. I think it's, it's still too early to talk about that as, like, a, as like a, I think that actually has to happen. But if it does, you know, a, a monster lefty out of the bullpen, like there are worse things in the world. You think about Andrew Miller, some, some guys like that. He sort of profiles as that kind of arm. That's, doesn't mean he's going to be that good in the bullpen. But, you know, it's sort of intriguing if you, if you kind of get there. But for now, you know, have him have a chance. And, you know, I don't know. If, if they were, for some reason, to have two or three spots open in the rotation at some point this season, I, I, I guess they could probably try him. Maybe he'll, as you said, sort of straighten things out in the major leagues. Newcomb has the best arm of, all, of, of the four guys, I think, pretty clearly. It's just whether or not he can actually iron things out enough to be effective at the big league level. And, you know, that trade has sort of been controversial. But, I don't know, It's I, and I guess it hinges on him, which is uh, unfortunate for him, just have that extra bit of pressure to be, you know, the guy that was traded for Anderson Simmons. But, I don't know, Newcomb's an interesting arm. It's just that... As you kind of said there, and I kind of not along with you, it's it's really tough to project because nobody can project whether he's going to throw strikes on a, on a given day. When he throws strikes, he's awesome. When he doesn't, he's not. And that's kind of uh, it's pretty easy to talk about, but it's just sort of the uh, reality here. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree with you. And the Simmons trade, I mean, still to this day, it, it's a it's a weird one because I mean, Ibar was obviously a disaster for four months. He was in Atlanta. And Ellis has already gone, traded as part of the Jaime Garcia deal. So Newcomb's really, he, he's the, really the last domino left. And he's, he's, he's shown signs of brilliance, but he's also been incredibly disappointing at times. But at the same time, I mean, Simmons has been, he hasn't been incredible with the Angels. He hasn't been, you know, that guy that they expect him to be. And they don't look like a team that, needs someone like him so I 
I could eventually see them flipping him, kind of like the Potters did with Kimbrell. And we could be in a situation where we're kind of comparing trade returns. Would you rather have Sean Newcomb or would you rather have whatever the Angels got for Simmons two years later? Yeah, that might be that might get ugly for the Braves too, but we'll we'll see on that. Uh, before I let you get out of here, I wanted to ask you about this lineup ranking that I saw actually from Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass, but actually for ESPN Insider. He ranked every Major League Baseball lineup this week and had the Braves at number 27. Uh, the full Ooh. list is on uh, ESPN Insider, so I don't want to get the whole thing away, but only ahead of the Royals, the Padres, and the White Sox. Does this, does this strike you as too low or about right, unfortunately? I'd say about right. If anything, it's too high. I was gonna. I had a feeling that you might say that just because I think I think of at least one or two below them that might be uh, a little bit better than the Braves and just for yeah, reference. I, mean, I, uh, I like that White Sox team. They have some decent hitters with Jose Abreu, Todd Frazier, our old buddy Melky. They have some. And when the Royals are actually playing up to expectation, they're not completely awful. Yeah, I mean you have, but just for reference, ahead of the Braves, you have the Phillies. Uh, the Brewers, the Rays, the uh, the Oakland Athletics, and the Tigers sort of in that range ahead of the Braves. I don't know. I, it's tough for me to say that the Braves are definitively better than any lineup in the league except for the Padres. You know, Will Myers is basically it for the Padres, uh, and Freddie Freeman's still better than Will Myers. So all things equal, the Braves are better than the Padres. But uh, aside from that, it's sort of the only one, at least unless I'm, missing, unless I'm missing something that maybe you can point out to me, but I think the Padres are the only lineup that I think I would definitely take the Braves ahead of right now, and then, uh, everything else after that sort of in the same tier-ish for me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, the Mets lineup right now is terrible without Cespedes. I mean, I might put the Braves ahead of them, though. Yeah, they have... I, th- I think the uh, I'm scrolling up trying to find it. yeah the piece basically says they're assuming could, could, that, that Suspendus is around which I understand uh, and they actually have the bets at 11 which still seems too high uh, even with Suspendus um, but you know they have Conforto they have some stuff but yeah I don't know it seems kind oh, of aggressive man, like, but <laughs> I mean if you rank lineups on a purely like statistical subjective basis then. I mean, yeah, it makes sense, but like, objectively, I mean, there aren't many Braves hitters I would watch. Like, I want to watch every day. I want to watch Matt Kemp every day, but I mean, what else? I want to watch Swanson and NCR just hoping to God they can end up turning it around, but I mean, that's really it. Yeah, that's sort of the dirty, dirty little secret here is that you have some interesting t- – I mean, Swanson, for instance, is sort of a perfect example. He's not a good hitter right now. He, he could be. Uh, he probably will be down the line, but right now he's not a positive for you, and it's basically Freeman and Kemp, and everything else is a question mark because, you know, Mark Hakus is, is what he is. He's fine. Uh, Enciarte is kind of is what, he's, uh, is what he is as well. He's more of a defensive player right now. Obviously, he's not awful offensively, but not anything to write home about. The rest of your infield, you know, Brandon Phillips, there was a, a little bit of a, uh, you know, sort of a rainbow early on. We'll see if that actually continues, and it's already sort of started to level off here. And, you know, Adonis Garcia is Adonis Garcia. So, I don't know. There isn't too much to get excited about. But, you know, at first blush, 27 seems low, and then you realize that it might might not be. Yeah, then you think about it. It's like, oh, it's like, what, 27th out of 30 teams? That's crazy. Then you start thinking about it and checking off all the teams, and it's like, eh, maybe – Maybe that makes a little bit more sense than you immediately think. And uh, right now, I think that I think that's about accurate. 
Yeah, which is not paint the greatest picture in the world, but uh, alas, that's why I brought it up, just to kind of see if I was crazy because I had the same thought you had there. Uh, well, Joe, I appreciate you coming on, my friend. Uh, please plug anything that you would like to. I know you work for approximately 100 sites on the Internet. But you, I think you run all of them, too, uh, just because <laughs> I know you're around. So please plug anything you like. I mean, well, it's really only two that I'm actively involved with on a daily basis. Imagine editor at AwfulAnnouncing, that is AwfulAnnouncing.com. Uh, I don't really write much in the way of columns there. I mostly do a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff in terms of editing and such, but uh, my fingerprints are all over that site, as well as thecomeback.com. I'm the news editor. You'll see a lot more of my bylines there, and uh, I'm a, I have a huge uh, footprint when it comes to the uh, news operations of that site as well. And on the Twitters, if you like... Uh, Manchester City soccer tweets and the occasional Braves tweet, uh, Joe underscore TOC. I would, uh, I would recommend all those things. I am a, a visitor to both websites and your Twitter feed on a regular basis, sir. So uh, please go out and follow Joe anywhere, anywhere that he is and anything that he does, I recommend it. Uh, I appreciate you doing this, sir. We'll have to do it again, hopefully in a more positive manner, a couple months down the line, and you know, hopefully things have uh, righted the ship. And if they haven't, we'll still talk about it. Thank you very much, Brad. And I'm going to be in Anaheim for uh, the Monday and Tuesday games of that Memorial Day series. So if anyone's going to be in Anaheim, let me know. And first round's on me. There you go. I'm sure we have somebody in, somebody uh, listening to this podcast that lives in Anaheim. If nothing <laughs> else, we could talk Scott Coleman into making the drive over from uh, from from Phoenix, which is where yeah. he is. So I have no idea how far that is. Maybe maybe that's crazy. Maybe it's like ten hours away. But because uh, everything in the everything in the West Coast is uh, a farther away than you think it is. But maybe Scott will make the trip. Scott, please, my friend. <laughs> I, I know I, I know I would I would be able to see you coming from up like a mile away, but it would still be good. Uh, Scott's the best. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for doing this, Joe. Uh, as for everybody else, we'll do this again at some point in time. Uh, no, we'll be back again next week, and hopefully with uh, some positive results to talk about. And uh, until then, stay tuned.